It's Palm Sunday. We've got the palms up here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but I want to continue off of what we talked about last week because I threw a lot of stuff out there. If you were here, we talked about a Christian's responsibility to the government. That chapters 12 through 16 in Romans is God's righteousness manifested through the Christian in different areas. Your relationship to God, your relationship to the body of Christ, your relationship to your enemy, and your relationship towards government. We saw last week that you and I are called as Christians to recognize, number one, government is divinely established by God. See that in Romans 13. That uh, Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, where you see government established to Noah. No longer are we going to let a man, if he kills another man, wander the earth and let his conscience govern him. It doesn't. By man, by human government, man's blood will be shed. If you snuff out that which is in the image of God, you shall be snuffed out. It's pretty simple. And he says that you and I have to recognize that it's divinely established. We have to respect the position of those who are in, <clears throat> we've got to respect those people who are in those positions, even though we don't like it. Even though you've got a tyrannical, godless, atheistic leader, you and I have to recognize that that person's put in there by God. We have to respect it and we have to respond biblically. We have to hupotasso. We've got to place ourselves underneath. They're God's agents of wrath. And so that's a tough one, especially in our present administration. We're looking at our country. We're looking at the direction that we're headed in, our children, our future. And it's kind of grim, isn't it? It's kind of bleak. And so what I want to do this week is I want to look at America. I want to take you all the way back of how America was established and the purpose of America. Where we went wrong, what can we do to correct it, and what part as Christians here at Telos Bible Church do we take? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to make sure that you get one. Raise your hand. Even if you forgot your Bible, take one. I'm not going to get too much into the word. We'll maybe look at a little bit in Deuteronomy. I'm just going to kind of have you sit back and just listen. I'm going to take you through how America was established and the purpose of it. America, if you think about it, we're a strange and unique country. You know, and I don't say that arrogantly or boastfully or pridefully, just out of a logical response of who we are and our beginnings. Uh, if you think of America, if you say, what's an American? An American is not a distinct people. We're not a locale. We're a different type of people. In other words, if you say Japan or Japanese, they're a distinct people and a distinct locale, right? Or if you say Chinese or German or African, those are distinct nations and distinct people. But America is a nation of immigrants, isn't that right? We're all transplants. You're either an African-American or Japanese-American or Chinese-American or Scottish or Irish or Swiss, French. So we're just a nation of immigrants. We're not a people or a certain locale, but America literally is, is an idea. Uh, it's a dream. You're a transplant. Unless you were an American Indian and you met the boat when it came... You and I are transplants. We're immigrants. And America is an idea. It's an ideology. It's a dream. It's the greatest idea that has ever been concocted by man. Do you know that? Well, wait a minute, Bernard. I thought you said the Bible is no. The Bible in Christianity is a revelation from God. It's not an idea. America is an idea. America is an idea that springboarded off of a medieval Augustinian back in 350, 400 AD idea of the city of God. If you ever read anything of Augustine, he had this idea of called the city of God, where you can literally have a nation uh, of people like the book of Revelation, like the, the kingdom of God here on the earth. Um, in the late 1500 to 1600s, most of the countries dictated their own religion. They were either Reformed, Protestantism, or Lutheran, or Catholic. You know, you had Catholics pretty much in Spain and Italy and France. 
But pretty much in the 15 and 1600s, the states determined and ruled their religions. There was a saying that says, he who is the religion or he who is the region is the religion. Except for England. England kind of vacillated back and forth from uh, Anglican Protestantism and Catholicism. They just kept vacillating. Queen Elizabeth, James, they just kept going back and forth. And you had a group of reformers out there that wanted a Protestant-run government. Uh, They were pretty radical. And they wanted to take the government and put it underneath the guise of the Bible. That you had a sovereign God that was outside of government that was to influence the government... And the government was to follow the moral absolutes and mandates of the Bible. And so these radical reformers, some of them stayed in England and tried to purify the system within. They were called, uh, anybody know? The Puritans. That's where you have Paul Bunyan. So you had a bunch of these reformers, these radical reformers that were trying to purify the government, bring the government into line with the Bible. And then you had another group of people that just said, we're out of here. We're tired of being under the tyranny of government, trying to run the church, trying to dictate us how to worship, when we can worship, and where we can worship. And they got on some boats and they came over here. What are they called? The Pilgrims. So you had the Puritans trying to purify the government in England, and then you had the pilgrims that came over here. They left. They had a Bible underneath their arms, and they came to what's called America. Now, America had been colonized about 150 years earlier. You had the French that colonized Canada for the means of furs and fishing, and then you had Spain that colonized Mexico and South America for the reasons of gold and treasure. But the pilgrims came over here for the strict purpose, for the sole purpose of freedom. Not a total libertarianism freedom, hedonism, meaning just to be able to party and do what my flesh wants to do. But a freedom, a liberty that was free from the hand of government regulating religion, regulating the church. So far, so good. Okay, this is I'm kind of just giving you a little history lesson. The idea was they wanted to come and establish this medieval idea of Augustine, a city of God. A state that was the church. A state in which God is governing through the church. Or Christ was in the government dictated by the church. Does that make sense? The idea was to have a nation, one nation under God. That's what they wanted. They wanted a Christian nation They were trying to set up this utopia, this city of God. Uh, Augustine believed in what's called a post-millennial view. Which I'm getting into it too much. I mean, I'm going to try to get to you the book of Revelation in the fall. But you have a millennial period in your Bible. A thousand year period where Christ will reign. Or literally you have a city or a world in which the knowledge of God has filled it. There is no war. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no poverty. And you've got this utopia that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Now you've got three views. There's a pre-millennial view where Jesus Christ comes and then the thousand year period begins. That's pre-millennium. Then you have post-millennium where the idea is that the church is going to bring about such a knowledge and an awareness of Christ that we'll literally bring in this utopia. One world under God. That's called post-millennialism. And then amillennialism means there's no millennial. That there isn't a physical reign of Jesus Christ. It's just that right now he's reigning in our hearts. Um, me, personally, I believe the Bible teaches a pre-millennial view. Jesus Christ will come and establish this thousand-year period in which the earth will bubble forth with life. No deserts will be like the garden of the Lord. And there'll be no pain, no suffering, no unbeliever, no wickedness. There'll be unbelievers, but you'll have to come for the book of Revelation for that one. But there'll be no wickedness. They won't be allowed to sin. Augustine believed that the church would literally be able to bring in this kingdom, bring in this city of God, this perfect society ruled by Jesus Christ. If you look at our earlier hymns, they reflect language out of the book of Revelation. 
alabaster seas or cities gleaming across the wilderness from sea to shining sea. That's all revelation talk, undimmed by human tears. That's all taken out of the book of Revelation. And these pilgrims came here and they believed that they would be able to set up the city of God, this nation ran by Jesus Christ. They pictured and saw what was called a theocracy, theos, which is God, cratic, which is a rule, not a democracy or Republican or a republic. They wanted a theocratic system where Jesus Christ rules through the state. Noble idea, don't you agree? Great idea. I'd be on the boat, wouldn't you? How about right now, if there was a whole bunch of Christians leaving this country to go establish a new one, one nation under God, who'd be on the boat? We won't go there. Now, what happened? You tell me what happened. Judy's going, I'm in. So far, so good. So the pilgrims came. That's what they tried to establish, this one nation under God. And the late 1600s, it failed. Do you know why this failed? Teenagers. I'm not kidding. Teenagers. What was happening was the faith of the parents was not being evident in the kids. They were rebelling. Imagine that. A teenage that rebels. You weren't seeing the faith showing up in the teenagers. It wasn't transferring. And so what they did was they established what was called a halfway covenant where the teenager could vote, but he could not get involved in church leadership, couldn't even take communion because they were so rebellious. It got to the point where you had the Salem witch trials and you had the mania of uh, 92, 1692. They started depicting them as witches and killing them. How's that? I mean, it just got crazy. It didn't work. Trying to establish this city of God by human means doesn't work. Why not? Humans can't do it. Our blessed hope is not in us. We will not be able to do it. The only way that you can set up this utopia, this one nation under God, where you've got a ruler that's ruling in perfect righteousness, is Jesus Christ when he comes. It was a great idea. It was a noble task. To come here on those ships, the hardships they face, we don't have time to get into it. But that was their idea. They wanted a city of God where Jesus Christ was ruling the nation. Justice rules the nation. But it doesn't work because man can't do it because man has fallen. Man can't ever govern himself because his heart is desperately wicked all the time. If you look at Palm Sunday, if you look at Jesus Christ, he comes in riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. He doesn't come in like Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in three years on his white horse, Bucephalus, which he was a tyrannical king. But here comes Jesus, mild and riding on a donkey. And he comes into Jerusalem and they're hailing him, Hosanna, which means save now. Son of David, they recognized him as the Messiah and they took palm branches and they laid him down at his feet. And they took their cloaks and laid them down at his feet. And the idea was, whatever it takes for you to establish your kingdom, because we recognize you as the Messiah, my cloak represents all that I am. Walk on it. You can walk over me. Use me as the bridge to establish your kingdom. The idea of the palms, oasis, uh, refreshment, they would take these these palm branches and they would make lean-tos. You can see it even today with some Orthodox Jews that celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? You can go by their front yard. If they're pretty strong in their faith, they'll have these lean-tos, these tent-like structures made out of palm branches. The idea was they were celebrating God's protection and provision when they wandered in the desert and looking forward to the time where God will tabernacle with man in perfect righteousness and rule from sea to shining sea. Did you catch all that? So Jesus Christ comes in, they're laying palm branches and they're putting their cloaks in front of them. The Jews are angry and he goes, they, they go to Jesus and say, tell your, your people to shut up. They shouldn't be hailing you as the son of David. They shouldn't be hailing you as the Messiah. And Jesus said, even if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves will sing out and cry out who I am. Because creation recognized the time of the righteous, just King Jesus and his own people didn't. 
Bible says he came to that which was his own, but his own would not accept him. But to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And I'm looking at you. We got him on the rebound. But Jesus comes in. In fulfillment, when I get to the book of Revelation in September, I'm going to go through it with you. It's one of the most incredible prophecies in your Old Testament. It prophesies the exact day in which Jesus Christ will come riding in on a donkey. Approximately 173,880 days from March 5th, 444 B.C. The issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 173,880 days, Jesus Christ rides in just like it was promised. And he goes into the temple and he presents himself formally as this king that will rule in perfect righteousness that the entire Old Testament is built upon. And he's weeping over Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you would have known on this day, what would have brought you peace? How I long to gather you up under my wing like a hen gathers her chicks. He says, but now it's hidden from you. And there was a postponement of this kingdom. And the gospel went to us. The good news went to us, the Gentiles. And the Bible says when that last Gentile, remember we looked at it in Romans 11, when that last Gentile is saved, then the Jewish people will realize and recognize Jesus as the Messiah and then that kingdom will come in. Because look, isn't this what we all are longing for? We're longing for what those pilgrims long for. We're longing for a nation under God, a city of God, are we not? Would you not love the president to come on when he gives a State of the Union address open in prayer? Right? Wouldn't you like to see that? No abortion. I mean, that's what we're longing for. But when's it going to come? When King Jesus comes and he establishes his kingdom. And see, he came in and they rejected him. You know why they rejected him? Because they were waiting for a king that would bring about social, economic, political, and racial reform. And we saw that last week. Jesus never came to this planet to try to reform the government, did he? Forget the old. The God of this world, which is Satan, is running that deal. I mean, God is in control of all things, but Satan is the God of this world. All the kingdoms belong to him. He offered them to Jesus in the temptations. Jesus didn't come to reform the government, did he? He submitted to the government. Pay to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. He came to reform man. How do you reform a man? From the inside out, you change his heart. Jesus came and said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so it's a noble idea. We long for that, but we know it's not going to come till Jesus comes. The triumphal entry, if the Jews would have accepted him, watch this. This will put a chill up your spine. If the Jews would have accepted him, Jesus still would have had to die for man because that's how a man is reconciled back to God and redeemed. But seven years later, the kingdom would have come in. Seven years later, if they would have accepted Christ, the kingdom would have come in. You would have had perfect righteousness rule. You would have had justice rule the nations. But they rejected him. Aren't you glad? Because now we're saved. But there's going to come a time where they will accept him. Okay, so it didn't work. Now, here's the upside. They came with a noble idea, a city of God, a city or a nation ruled by Jesus Christ. It didn't work. It failed because of fallen men. But however, this is the upside. They did leave us with a residue. They left us with a biblical perspective of God and government, didn't they? That God is sovereign that God loves man who's made in his image and has died for his salvation. They gave us a residue of a high view of the Bible in which the government needs to be run by the Bible. In Deuteronomy 17, it says the king has got to read the Bible every day and obey it. They left us with the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under God. That Jesus sets you free. And when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Isn't that what the Constitution says? That our Creator has endowed all men to be free? Where do they get that? 
It's all from the scripture. And the great thing is they didn't just come up with a constitution. They came up with a constitution, not to just govern man, but one that reflected Mount Sinai. Now, what happened at Mount Sinai? You tell me. God takes two million people who've been in bondage for 400 years. They have no idea on how to govern themselves so they don't kill each other. And God brings them out for two years. He keeps them at Mount Sinai. What does he give them at Mount Sinai? I'll give you a hint. Stone tablets. He gave them the Ten Commandments and 603 other prohibitions and commands. 248 prohibitions, 365 commands. He told them what to eat. He told them what to wear. He told them what to do with diseases and mold and fungus on the walls. Sacrificial law, dietary law. He governed them. He gave them the law to govern the people. It was to be a theocratic system. God governs the people and he does it through the law. Now, here's the brilliance of it. You've got a government and this is what we set up here. We had a government that governed the people through a, through through the law, in a sense, through through a constitution, not a king. Okay? In England, you had the king governing the land. Here we had a constitution. Let me read you something. Uh, to live under the American constitution is the greatest political privilege God has ever given to mankind. Calvin Coolidge said that. George Washington said, while just government protects all in their religious rights, true religion affords government its surest support. While just government protects all in their religious rights, true religion affords government its surest support. Why? Because you can't have true government if it's not governed by moral absolutes. There was a statement that came out of this time period. Absolute power, what? Corrupts absolutely. So we're not going to have someone running this country who's in absolute power like England. No one said we're going to have a constitution that's set up like the Bible. A Gentile Sinai. And then we're going to have checks and balances. We're going to have Congress. We're going to have Senate. We're going to have everybody holding each other accountable. But Christ is going to rule the government. Christ in the Bible is going to rule the nation. In England, it was Rex Lex, which means the king is law. In America, it was Lex Rex. The law is king. And that's how it was set up. That Christ was to rule the nations. How was he to rule the nations? Through the Bible. The Bible was to affect the government. And let me tell you something. Church and state, the separation of that came from a letter from Thomas Jefferson written to a church congregant who was worried that the government was going to come in and start running the churches like it did in England. And Thomas Jefferson sent a letter saying, no, that's not going to happen. There is a separation of church and state. There's a wall. That the government's not supposed to run the church, but the churches are to run the government. You follow me? And what we did is we took that and we used it, or fallen man used it, to pull God out of the schools and prayer out of the schools and God out of everything that is government. That is not the reason for that stipulation in there. It was to prevent the government from going crazy and suppressing the churches. And suppressing our ability to worship Jesus Christ and follow this Bible. Now look at the mess we're in. Now we were to have a government that reflected the sovereignty of God. A biblical idea of fallen man being redeemed by God. It was to reflect right and wrong and moral absolutes. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Justice was to rule the nations. Never to have absolute power given to one man. Man has fallen. And we were to elect officials that held to moral uprightness and holiness, weren't we? The officials that we were supposed to put into office were to be holy, virtuous, and upright. 
That was the idea of this government governed by God and governed by the Bible. And again, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, seven things God gives us, seven qualifications and character attributes that we are to look for in a politician. And I'll give them to you. I won't give them to you today. Maybe I will. Seven things. And then what you do is you take a candidate and you hold them up to see how many of those seven they hit on. We are supposed to elect holy government officials. And if they don't do right, if they're bad, we get rid of them in four years. Isn't that good? Isn't that a good system? You don't have somebody in there forever. And then you've got this tyrannical king that dies and then his piece of garbage son comes in and rules and it just keeps perpetuating. No, if this guy's a loser, if he doesn't do right, we get rid of him in four years. It's a great system. Let me read you some of the Old Testament, not Old Testament. Let me read you some of the old uh, early presidents quote. Are you ready for this? I've done this before. This is amazing to me. George Washington quote, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. George Washington, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Why? Because you give a human being, a moral human being liberty without a governor, he goes crazy. If you don't give a human being a law and and rules to govern him, then you get into relativism. You get into what we are now. When you pull back from the Bible, John Quincy Adams, so great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country and respectable members of society. These are our early presidents. Andrew Jackson, that book, sir, is the rock on which our republic rests, unquote. Abraham Lincoln, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Woodrow Wilson, I ask every man and woman in the audience today that from this day on, they will realize that part of the destiny of America lies in their daily perusal of this great book. Want some more? Herbert Hoover, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teaching of Christ and the lesson of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity of American life, not an option. It is a necessity of American life. Why? Because if we pull back, then this whole thing collapses and implodes. Dwight D. Eisenhower, to read the Bible is to take a trip to a far land where the spirit is strengthened and faith is renewed. Our presidents, what has happened? How did we get here? I was listening to one guy on the TV the other day. He said, our country is sick, isn't it? How did it happen? Moral creatures can't have liberty without law, can't have liberty without the basis of a Bible of what your creator expects of you and has given you to live life and live it abundantly, to live a peaceful life. You want me to tell you what happened? Here we go. I'll give you the short version. Science removed God. Are you ready for this? The atheists had an Achilles heel. They said that there is no God. Ah, theistic means no God. Ah, in the Greek, no theos is God. No God. But they had Achilles heel because you had an effect. You had creation. You had form, function, and design. And that which is an effect, there has to be a cause, right? And that was their biggest Achilles heel. That's what we got them every time. Guess what happened in the 1850s? Darwin came up with his origin of the species. Now we're all here by chance. We all evolved from lemurs or monkeys. And see what that did was it gave the atheists credo. It gave them credence. It gave them credibility. Now all of a sudden atheism is legitimate. It's been validated by science. How's that? And then it took off like wildfire. 
And then that gave way to what's called higher criticism, to where they took the Bible and they just started dissecting it. We took the guts out of it. Well, we really can't believe that. And come on, 6,000 years to where we are now. Well, no, millions of years. And they just took the guts out of the Bible. Up to the 1850s, nobody had a problem with the earth being only 6,000 years old. None. But all of a sudden now you've got the atheists who have credence. They punt God. In the 1900s, it gave way to the higher criticism, discredited the Bible. Then you got philosophy that comes in. You got nihilism where, man, how do you know you even exist? You could be just a, a thought of a daydreaming iguana. They literally said that nihilism. You just really don't exist. Then the philosophers come in. I think therefore I am. And then that gave way to what's called exist. I exist. Existentialism. Where now I get to determine truth as a human. I get to dictate my future. I'm the captain of my ship. How's that? Until you had up to about the 50s. Now, here's here's what's amazing to me. I'm looking at all this. I'm looking at where philosophies are taking us. Where evolution has taken us. It's completely destroyed the foundation of our faith. It gave way to nihilism and existentialism, humanism, secularism. Where man is worshipped instead of God. And what's the church doing throughout the 1900s? Yeah. Letting it happen. We stuck our finger up in the wind. We trimmed our sails to all the philosophies. We made the the gospel social now. We started adapting to where we syncretized ourselves with the philosophies and the hypotheses of science. Because that's all evolution was. And now you've got what's called theistic evolution. Oh yeah, God created, but he brought it about by an evolutionary process. Bull honky. Six days he created the earth and seven days he rested. And you take your Bible from Genesis to where Jesus came and where we are now at 6,000 years. Period. But see, we started trimming our sails. We started making a social gospel. We started being not so offensive to people. Let's water it down. And we trimmed our sails. We created the golden calf, didn't we? Are you totally depressed yet? Hold on. Gets worse, but then it'll get better. And then the 50s came about, which was post-war, and it was party time. Okay? We don't have to hold to the Bible or God. Things were crazy. And then the 60s, and don't be too hard on the 60s, because what happened in the 60s, Well, that generation realized something was wrong. Things ain't right in this country. But they just didn't have any solutions. We weren't giving them any. You think about it. We pulled back from the morality of the Bible. There was no solid foundations. We were telling them don't do things. And they said, why? Why can't I have sex outside of marriage? Why can't I have free love? Says who? We couldn't give many answers. Used to say God. The Bible. This is what's right. And so they didn't have any answers. They didn't have any solutions. And so they just said, the heck with it all. Woodstock, free love, Timothy O'Leary, go take a trip. Right? And they completely unbolted from all moral absolutes. Because we had dissected the Bible, diluted it to the point where now we're just bubbles of emptiness on seas of nothingness. There is no God. You just evolve from a pond. And you know what's happening? Here's, here's what's interesting in the 60s. We went to the, we went to the, uh, to the, to the east for wisdom. Yoga, martial arts. I'm not kidding you. We went to the east for wisdom, mysticism. The Beatles, most of you Beatle fans, they had a big part in that, didn't they? Remember Revolver, the album, the music they were starting? They went over and studied with the Maharisha for a while, or Maharishi, whatever his name is. So we brought in, and if you look at it, the arts are usually the pulpit for this kind of stuff. Movies, music, right? Have I lost you? Are we good? I know I'm kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to ramble too much. I want to just kind of just succinctly bring you along. So in the 70s, we're trying to recover from the 60s. I'll tell you, I saw a great 
black and white film in seminary. I've told you this before, where this guy was on top of a building in New York, black and white, had a leather red bear and helmet on with goggles, and he had made these wings out of wood and and uh, canvas. And he was up there, and he thought he could fly. And you saw him going to the edge, flapping his wings, and coming back, flapping his wings, and he finally launched himself off, and he flew for about two seconds. And then all of a sudden, you see him disappear from the camera, and the next scene is they go down to the sidewalk, and there's this three-foot hole that his body made because he didn't fly. And the professor said, that's what we did in the 60s. We launched ourselves off, we unbolted from the morals and the absolutes of the Bible, we untethered ourselves from the mothership, thought we could fly, and we started falling. And in the 70s, we hit. And we've been trying to recover ever since, gang. We hit in the 70s. You had a total collapse of morality. Think about this. Because you could go back to those in the 60s, in the 70s, and go, free love. No absolute truth. Do what you feel. How's that working for you? How's your marriage? How's your kids? How's your job? What job? You know, just getting stoned all day long. You had a total breakdown, abortion, venereal D's running rapid, homosexuality, lesbian, you name it, flourishing in this country. And we've been trying to recover ever since. Let me read you some things. Uh, last week, remember I read you all the early compacts about how, let me just read you, the New England Charter in 1620 was to advance the enlargement of Christian religion to the glory of God. The Constitution of the New England Confederation, whereas we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel Impurity with peace. The Declaration of Independence had four references to God in it. You go down the list. Abraham Lincoln said this. We have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. But we have forgotten God. Intoxicated with unbroken successes. We have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. Abraham Lincoln. I promised you this last week. I'll give it to you. 15 principles of liberty. There's a little bit more, but these are the 15 main ones that I see. These are 15 principles that can change the world. These are necessities for liberty to exist. Number one, a free people cannot survive under Republican constitution unless they remain virtuous and morally strong i'll go ahead and have kathy um print these up this week and i'll put them in the bulletin next week how's that so you can just listen a free people cannot survive under republican a republican constitution unless they remain virtuous and morally strong number two the most promising method of securing a virtuous and moral stable people is to elect virtuous leaders Number three, without religion, the government, or without the Bible, the government of a free people cannot be maintained. Without the Bible, the government of a free people cannot be maintained. All things were created by God. Therefore, upon him, all mankind are equally dependent, and to him, they are equally responsible. Next one, all mankind were created equal. Next one, the proper role of government is to protect equal rights, not provide equal things. Wait, I'm going to read that one again. Did you catch that? The proper role of government is to protect equal rights, not to provide equal things. It's not our job as the government or the government's job. Next one, to protect man's rights, God has revealed a certain principle of divine law. Next one, a constitution should be structured to permanently protect the people from the human frailties of their rulers. I'll read that one again. A constitution should be structured to permanently protect the people from the human frailties of their rulers. Did we do that? Did we establish a a, a constitution that would? Yes. What's happened? It got all messed up. The highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. Did you hear that? 
The highest level of prosperity occurs when there is a free market economy and a minimum of government regulations. So you maximize government regulations. What happens to prosperity? You're gone. Socialism. Next one, a system of checks and balances should be adopted to prevent abuse of power. <laughs> Next one, only limited and careful defined power should be delegated to government, i.e. holy. All others being retained by the people. Next one, a free people should be governed by law and not by the whims of men. Next one, a free society cannot survive as a republic without a broad program of biblical education. Next one, the core unit which determines the strength of any society is the family. Therefore, the government should foster and protect its integrity. Here's the last one. The burden of debt is as destructive to freedom as subjugating by conquest. Did you hear that? The burden of debt is as destructive to freedom as subjugating by conquest. Are you thoroughly bummed yet? Hold on. We got to take this plane out of the dive. Is there any hope? What do you think? Brothers and sisters in Christ, is there any hope? Look at us. And I can go on and on and on. We have to reform, don't we? We have to reform this government. We have to reform this nation. We have to return to what our forefathers did when they established this country, don't we? Because that is why we are so blessed. Remember, Abraham Lincoln said, we have forgotten the prosperity that God has given us because we worshiped him. And see, what happens is times get so bad that people have to resort to God. And that's what I think you're seeing in this country. I believe God has continually given us warning shots. And he says, you want a godless government? I'll give you one. He is a gentleman. You want to pull me away from your schools and out of the teaching institutions? Great. How's that working for you? How's murder? How's crime? How's, how's your kids? We need Jesus. It's like Mary and Joseph. When they left, they said, where's Jesus? They lost him. How'd they find him? You go back where you left him. What do we need to do? We've lost him. We got to go back where we left them. And let me tell you what we need. Our churches have got to come back to the Bible. Our churches have got to come back to teaching this book. And the churches, for the most part, have just become marketing ploys. Right? Showtime at the Apollo. Entertainment complexes. Empty shells of motivational speakers and hype. I mean, you got guys, you watch, turn on TV, you got guys working the crowds like a microphone, with a microphone. That's how one church, a guy built a motorcycle, jump on a stage and jump the motorcycle. We've become these entertainment complexes, these ear-tickling churches to tell you what you want to hear. Instead of exalting the Bible. Instead of putting this book First and foremost in its place. Let me read you. I love this guy. A hundred years ago, this man came to our country. He's the ambassador of France. His name is Alexander Tocqueville. Over a hundred years ago, he came. This is what he said. He says, I visited America. I came to the United States and I looked at it to see the cause of its greatness. I found that its greatness was not in its sprawling prairies. It was not in its great illustrious cities. Not in its form of government or in its military might. What I saw in the United States was from the American pulpits came the thundering of the righteousness of God. He said America is great because America is good. And when America ceases being good, America shall cease being great. Edmund Berg said all that needs to happen for evil to flourish is good men do nothing. Four things we need to do. Number one, I just gave it to you. We got to get back to the book. The churches have got to get back to preaching the Bible. The sovereignty of God. The majesty of God Almighty. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Fallen man in need desperately of a Savior. 
Number two, not only do we got to go back to teaching the Bible and holding it and putting it back in its place, we got to obey it. We got to live it. I'm sorry. I love this town. I love being in Branson. I came from Dallas, one of the most pagan cities in this country, one of the most materialistic cities in this country. And I see more people who claim to be Christians that ain't living it than I ever saw in Dallas in this city. It's an amazing thing to me. Now, maybe they just weren't taught their Bibles or maybe they don't know what God expects. But I see Sunday Christians and Monday pagans. It's unbelievable to me. We can't just study. We got to live it. We got to obey it. And I'm going to pick on you males. Us males have got to submit to the Bible. It starts with us. The strength of any country is the family unit. And the head of the family is you men. You cut the head off, the body dies. The attacks are coming on us men. We are to be godly examples to our children and to our wives and to our cultures, to our city. Amen? Are we not? And I'm sick and tired. Can I vent? Can I go off here? I'm sick and tired of this viewpoint of Christian men as being a bunch of weenies. Turn the other cheek. Let me tell you something. Jesus was a bad dude. He was a man's man or a men's man. However you want to say it. That guy turned over the money tables and nobody touched him. He was smarter than anybody else. Stronger than anybody else. You couldn't stump him. You never heard Jesus say, oh man, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. He was a real man. And what we've taken as far as the Christian male goes, and we've weaned him up. Turn the other cheek. You're just supposed to be this, this mild little guy that never gets mad and never gets passionate about anything. Spineless. No, that's not it. Sorry, that's not Jesus. That's not how we're supposed to be. And when you return to the Bible, when you get back to where we're supposed to be, then you know how to respond to creation. Right? You don't die and become a rock or a tree. How to respond to your wife? You are the head of your family. You are to lead by example. How to be a good boss, a good employee, good example to your children. How to be males. We've forgotten how to be males in this country. Do I need to even go off on that? I'll calm down. <laughs> Veins are sticking out of my neck. But we've lost our way. We've lost on what it means to be a man. Because we've unplugged from the Bible. We've got to be leading our families and leading this country in holiness and righteousness. Amen. Number three, we've got to come back to the gospel. We've got to preach Jesus Christ, not a social gospel, not a fluff gospel, not a genie in a bottle gospel where you come to Jesus and you have all this success and all this financial gain. No, we got to come to Jesus, the Jesus who died to save you from your sin. Number one, put the Bible back in its right place. Number two, we got to obey it. Number three, we got to we got to come back to the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And number four, the churches have got to come back to their purpose, and that's discipling men and women. Discipling men and women. Listen, we got Bible studies on Wednesday morning at 6.30 for you men at the church office. We've got it for you gals at 11 o'clock, Thursday at noon. We've got a gals program that's going to get ready to start. It's discipling. It's Titus 2, where the older women are going to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and get into the word. I mean, we, we church, we have to disciple each other. I've got to take you through this book and teach you the deep truths of God and Jesus Christ and what he expects of you and I and where he's purposed us and where he's taken us. We've got to get back to discipling men and women. Isn't that what Jesus said? The Great Commission. Go out and make disciples of men, teaching them to obey the word. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit of man. If we don't, listen to me. If we don't come back to this, if we don't do these four things as a church, and God knows as long as there's breath left in my lungs and he 
finds gracious enough to keep me here, that's what we're going to be doing. And let me tell you something, and I mean this from the heart. It's a privilege for me every week to get up here and stand in front of you, a people who are hungry and they still want to grow. You still got a brain in your head and you want to know the deep truths of this Bible. And then you want to be challenged. You want to be stretched. I love it. Don't ever change. And as long as there's breath in my lungs, I commit to you. I'm going to bring you this book to the best of my abilities and watch you grow and watch God do some mighty things in your life, miraculous things. But if we don't do this, Romans 1, where they recognized God, they rejected him, they replaced him, they reasoned him out and they became a reprobate society and you saw ruination. And what'll happen is you'll get Another group of people on another day get on another boat with a Bible under their arm and they'll go do another America because it's an idea. It's not a locale. It's not a people. It's an idea that's built upon Augustine's city of God that we will bring it about. But we know we can't. We're waiting for King Jesus. Amen. And this is what we need to do. You know this verse. Now you're going to know where it is because all of you heard of it. Second Chronicles 7.14. This is what we do. God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. If my people who are called by my name. That's you. Now here he's referring to Israel, but we're grafted in. You are his people. You are God's people. It says in Peter, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you should declare praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. First Peter 2, 9. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. You ain't all that. It ain't you controlling your destiny. It's God. That's called humility. It's called the opposite of pride. Humble myself or humble themselves and pray. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a return, a reform. We need to change the direction. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. That's what we need. But you know something? It can start right here with 150 people. It can start right here with Telos. And we can get this reform or reformation or revival, a revive. A re-life starting here and spread throughout the country. If they see you standing firm in your truth, they see you growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through your Bible. And you obeying and you wanting to get back to that old time religion of discipling people and morality and absolutes. Watch what happens. It's infectious. It's intoxicating. But we'll do it right here. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go ahead and check questions. We got questions? Great. And then we're going to do, what we've decided to do is, we were praying on Saturday night, okay? And we weren't getting too many people. It was kind of hard with families and everything. So the last Sunday of every month, we're going to have a church-wide prayer. And what I'm going to do is, when I finish the questions, we're just going to take the chairs. We're going to put them in circles, groups of about six or seven people. Now, I really will. If you have to go, I understand, but I'd like for you to stay. It's only going to be about 25, maybe 30 minutes. We're going to get in small groups and I'm going to say, okay, for five minutes or three minutes, pray for the president. And in your little small group, you pray. You don't have to pray out loud. I hope somebody in that group can. You can just sit there and pray to yourself the whole time because I know it's kind of hard sometimes to pray out loud. And then I'll say, let's pray for Congress. Let's pray for this city. Let's pray for our children. Let's pray for our teachers. Let's pray for this church. Okay. Cause prayer is the thin nerve that flexes the muscles of an omnipotent God. Okay. So let's do that. Let's hit these questions and then we'll pray for a little while. Okay. Are you all right? Look at your toes. It's all good. Jesus is coming. There's the hope that we have. Jesus is coming. We just hold on to that hope and that certainty. No matter how bad and ugly it gets in the government, he's coming. All right, hit me. What do we got? I bet you these will be good. I'm confused. Last week you said that we are to submit to government. And then this week you are saying that we are to reform government. No, I'm not saying reform government. Here's what I'm saying. Well, 
here's what I'm saying. We have to submit to the government that God's put into place. When our fathers established this country, the idea was that the church was to influence government, not vice versa. Now what you've got is the government because we've allowed it, right? You've got the government now telling us how to live our lives. What can we do? How can we reform government? How can we get, let me put it this way. How can we get a government back to where it's not, it, it's Lex Rex. It's the law runs the land. It's Jesus Christ running this nation through the government. How do we do that? How's the system set up? Do we do, yeah, elections. Do we, do we bring about a coup? Do we assassinate the president? No, we, we have elections. We can elect leaders. Now, what kind of leaders are we supposed to elect? Godly ones, as godly as they can be. And again, the seven things in Deuteronomy 17, we're supposed to hold these leaders up. So in a sense, we're to reform the government or pray for reformation. But the only thing we can do is to elect godly leaders that will reform the government from within, right? What I was saying last week is you and I can't rebel against the government. You and I can't get together a coup and go take out the president or refuse to pay taxes because they're using our taxes for government funding abortions or whatever. Okay? Good question, though. Does that make sense? So the government needs to be reformed, but how do we do it? We elect officials. We do everything we can legally within our abilities to elect officials that will be godly and try to pull this thing out of its tailspin that it's in. Okay? What I'm saying is we can't go forcefully try to reform government. Government needs to be reformed. Everybody agree? Okay. What else we got? Many people say that they don't believe in the Bible and ask why they should be forced to follow it through the government laws. How do we respond to that? Why they should be forced to follow it through the government's laws. I don't think I understand that. Many people say they don't believe in the Bible and ask why they should be forced to follow through the government laws. I don't think there's no government laws that say we have to follow the Bible. Right? I think I think I kind of understand the question. That was the problem with England. They were forcing the people to follow the the mandate of the government that they've established on how everybody had to worship. Okay? This country was founded to where you have a freedom of religion. Um, if the government tries to force you to go against the Bible, if you're a Christian, then you don't have to follow that. If the, if the government tries to force you to abort a child, and that's clearly against the Bible, then you take the penalty. That's the idea. I don't know if that helps. I think, uh, okay, if you're in a position such as teaching and are not allowed to pray or have Bible taught, what are we to do when living the Christian life includes it? Man, therein lies the, the problem, huh? I mean, do you, here's the thing, and this is really, this is a fine line. Do you go ahead and, and stand up and teach the Bible and lose your job and silence your voice? Or do you try to be creative and do it the best you can? See, that's a tough one. Now, I don't know how bad it is here in Branson schools. My boys are 10 and 8. So I'm just waiting for the first evolution class to come up because I got my kid loaded up. You know, but that's, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. If you're a teacher, where's the line? Now, I think there's some pretty, some of you, some of you teachers out there, I think there's some pretty, pretty broad lines laterally, right, Terry, that, that you guys can kind of get away with some stuff that other school districts can't. But do the all I can say is do the best you can, sneak it in when you can. Don't lose your job to where you lose your voice because at least they can see your lifestyle. At least you can you can preach morality and uprightness. You can preach all the values of the Bible without using the name Jesus. And I know you're going, well that sounds kind of hypocritical because aren't we supposed to stand up for it if the if the government says you can't do this and that's against the Bible, the Bible says preach it, yeah. But like, let's say, watch this. Let's say, for instance, um, like they have in Canada and they've been trying to push in this country that if I preach against homosexuality, it's a hate crime. What should I do? Should I preach against it and get thrown in jail or just kind of 
Preach it, but don't preach it. <laughs> Will you guys come bail me out? Yeah. So anyway, good questions. This is, again, this is a tough subject. This is why I took two Sundays. I don't know everything. I try to do the best I can and try to point you to here every time. And then individual circumstances, boy, you got to pray and listen to God, get some wise counsel. But it's a touchy subject, isn't it? It's tough. We're in some troubling times. But again, the beauty is the hope that we have is Jesus is coming. We will have a king that's going to reign in perfect righteousness. We will have a king that will wipe away all tears. There'll be no social reform that's necessary. There'll be no social security, no health bills that we'll have to worry about. There'll be no war. There'll be no pain. There'll be no suffering. That's what we long for. That's what we're promised. That's what we hold to. Amen? The beauty is, is we got a Bible, and that Bible has been proven over and over and over. And skeptics, hammers just keep beating upon the anvil of the word. The hammers are gone. The anvil's still here. Bring it on. All right? Let me... uh, let me pray this out here real quick and then let's do this. If you're going to stay, let's just go ahead and get some chairs and put them around in a circle. And we'll just, like I said, about 20 minutes, we're just going to pray for this country. We're going to pray for this city. We're going to pray for our church and our kids. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Let me go ahead and give the announcements. I'm going to pray and then I'll give a, just a few announcements. All right. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. I thank you that we do have a country that we can still freely open your word glean wisdom from you this is the only source of true wisdom and truth is your revelation that you've given to us man what a privilege again to stand before these folks that are hungry that long to grow that long to deepen their relationship with you through your word keep that fire burning bright in them we just pray for tell us we pray that you'll keep us tightly in your grip put a hedge of protection around us and let us make a deep deep impact for you in this city That uh, we pray for revival. We pray for a reform. We pray for people getting fired back up in their books all the way up to the White House.